This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When it comes to my health care, I want choices, like more doctors and hospitals, so I get to see who I want. With Independence Blue Cross, I don't have to compromise when it comes to my care. Independence makes it easy. Their online tools help me manage my plan and even keep my health on track with programs designed for my well-being. And with free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, I get easy access to care when I need it, saving me time. Open enrollment ends on January 15th. Enroll today at ibx.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. In Odyssey Station, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this second Sunday in January of 2022. Time to discuss New Year's resolutions, whether it's losing weight, stopping smoking, or exercising more. But for the next few weeks, we'd like to discuss not only what you'd like to do, but how to achieve these goals. We are very happy to welcome the return of Dr. Jamie Garfield, Associate Professor of Thoracic Medicine and Surgery from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. And she also holds other leadership positions as Director of Quality and Improvement and Patient Safety at Temple University Hospital. And she's a core clinical faculty member for the internal medicine residents and core clinical educator for Temple Medical students. During our last discussion, we talked about smoking and use of tobacco products and their associated risks of COPD and lung cancer. Let's review some of the other organ systems that are at increased risk for disease with smoking. Welcome, Jamie, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne, for welcoming me. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so, so we start with the risks. I know a lot of people think, I could be wrong, that cigarette smoking carries more risks than smoking cigars or pipes. Let's start with that. Sure. So all tobacco products carry risk. There's lots of different tobacco products that are marketed in a number of different ways, but there is no safe level consumption of tobacco and no safe consumption of nicotine. The risks are somewhat different for the different tobacco products. So we have chewing tobacco, we have pipes, and we have hookah, we have uh, combustible cigarettes, and then eventually we will get to talking about e-cigarettes, but all of these are considered tobacco products. Um, Whether the tobacco stays in your mouth um, or mostly in your mouth or how the smoke is generated and how it's inhaled, if it's inhaled deeply, how how long these puff or smoking sessions last, all of these things factor into risk. And I think the average person realizes that smoking increases your risk for high blood pressure, subsequently heart disease and stroke, because as I understand it, smoking damages the lining of blood vessels, so they become thicker, harder for the blood to pass through, and then your heart works harder. It beats faster. It raises your blood pressure, as we said. It can also damage that main artery that supplies your whole body, the aorta, bumping the risk for aneurysms because it's not as elastic. 
and it raises your levels of bad cholesterol. I don't think many people realize that your LDL can go up and it lowers your good cholesterol. Not good. Um, and if it stimulates clots, we know what clots can do. They block the roadway. You can't get blood to your brain. You have a stroke. You block arteries to your heart, heart attack, uh, peripheral vessels. You're going to have uh, clots to your legs. I was kind of surprised to see that women have six times the risk and men have three times the risk of having a heart attack versus people who don't smoke. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, there's so many risks. The cardiovascular risks and maybe the cancer risks are the most commonly talked about. But there are a number of different uh, or additional risks for someone who is an active tobacco user compared to a, a non-smoker. There's an increased mm -hmm. risk of infections, um, pneumonia, flu, even COVID, which we're talking more and more about. Um, importantly, nicotine can increase insulin resistance, which will increase the risk for developing type 2 diabetes, a very, very common disease. Uh, it accelerates bone loss and can increase the risk for fractures, particularly in, in elderly women. Um, I think importantly, and maybe not discussed commonly, is that it reduces fertility in both men and women. Uh, men can have erectile dysfunction. Uh, women will see uh, premature birth, still, stillbirth, low birth weight, ectopic pregnancies. All of these things are a consequence of uh, chronic uh, cigarette or tobacco use, increasing the risk for cataracts. Um, and actually, periodontal disease is one of the biggest uh, risks for um, ongoing tobacco use, teeth, uh, teeth, tooth loss, um, and gum disease. And rheumatoid arthritis, too. I don't think people realize that's uh, a risk as well. And it, it makes sense if uh, when we're talking about pregnancy and a developing baby, if the baby gets less oxygen, they're not going to reach their, their full birth weight, just as an adult, the, the smoker himself or herself, self, if there's more carbon monoxide attached to your hemoglobin and less oxygen, it, you're not going to be able to exercise as much. You're going to have uh, abnormal heart rhythms and, and it just continues from there. So the smoke from cigarettes, cigars, pipes have so many 70 plus chemicals that can damage DNA that control our cell growth. Let's talk about the multiple cancers uh, with increased risks due to smoking. Sure. So tobacco smoking causes mutations of cell lines, and that's how ultimately a cancer will develop. Mutations can occur in the cells that promote cancer. Those are called oncogenes. They can also develop in the, the genes that suppress cancer. So those are called tumor suppressor cells. And we can get into the details of this, but you know, there's lots of different reasons why uh, cancers will develop, while to, why tumors, while certain mutations uh, will increase the risk of cancer. And the risk for cancer in an active tobacco smoker and even a past tobacco smoker is far greater uh, than in that of a non-smoker. And it's not just lung cancer. It's really almost every single type of cancer is increased in a, um, a current or previous tobacco smoker compared to a non-smoker. And specifically, um, in addition to lung, it's head and neck cancer. So that's cancers of the lip and the tongue and the larynx. Um, gastrointestinal cancers, such as those of the esophagus and the stomach, especially the stomach, colorectal cancer, which I know is right up your alley, uh, pancreatic and liver cancer, uh, bladder and kidney cancer, reproductive cancer, specifically cervical cancer, and some leukemias. 
Um, the risk relates to the type of the tobacco product, as I started to say. So chewing tobacco, which is held in the mouth, will increase the risk of oral cancers, whereas things like um, cigars may increase the risk of head and neck cancers because of the way the users might hold on to the smoke in their mouth before inhaling, whereas um, things like adenocarcinoma of the lung is increased with um, cigarettes where uh, users will inhale very deeply so that the uh, carcinogens are deposited way deep down in the lungs where these tumors begin. So the risk for different types of malignancies have to do with smoking patterns and practices, um, but all, almost all cancers, uh, the risk for almost all of these cancers are increased in cigarette smokers compared to non-smokers. Mm -hmm. And I guess even if somebody says, I just like the smell of cigars, I hold it in my mouth, I don't really inhale, they're still making smoke that they inhale because they're in the presence of that cloud. Let's take a, we have a, about a minute left and we can continue in the next segment about marijuana. Does that increase risk for cancers? Sure. So marijuana or cannabis, people use different terms. I prefer cannabis, um, has been smoked um, or chewed even for decades. And it's still taboo and kind of poorly regulated and a bit secretive and even illicit in some states. Um, there's really very little on um, testing and um, studying cannabis from what we know and so that's a, a, a huge limitation but from what we know there does not seem to be an increased risk in cancer um, in chronic cannabis users but there are tons of other diseases that are associated with cannabis use like cough and phlegm and copd and asthma exacerbations increasing the risk for lung infections um, but to answer your question there doesn't appear to be an increase in cancer in chronic cannabis users mm -hmm. and, but i know it can affect brain development so if people beginning using it as a teenager, uh, it can impair memory, thinking, yes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why it's dangerous to use cannabis products, particularly products that are bought um, in, on the street or, you know, not through a legalized dispensary uh, because they, they can be contaminated and they're not tested or regulated. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of increased risk, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get to e-cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Jamie Garfield from Temple. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back with Dr. Jamie Garfield talking about the importance of walking away from smoking cigarettes and, and other tobacco products. And we were talking about marijuana and we wanted to finish with that, Jamie. We hope that now that um, there are dispensaries, we hope there'll be some regulation because there are benefits, yes? Uh, yeah, I mean, medical medical marijuana certainly has a role. Um, as a pulmonologist, I can't endorse smoking anything or creating combustion and tar for anything, but I think the edible products are um, certainly indicated for lots, all different sorts of chronic diseases, and I, and I support that. Um, I think that when we look at the history of cannabis over the past, you know, few decades, the 1960s, 1970s, those products were really different from the products that we're seeing on the market today. The amount of THC in the current products are much higher um, than the amount of tetrahydrocannabinoid, um, which were in the products of the 1960s and 1970s. So any data that we might have from those early years might not be relevant. Uh, and I don't think we really have a full picture of the health risks of chronic cannabis use. Um, you started to say about brain development, and it's true that people who use chronic cannabis 
um, teenagers um, or young adults may have impaired thinking and memory and learning functions and that we do see an increased risk of mental illness in some folks who use uh, these drugs for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, well said. And people who maybe started using uh, smoking in the 60s and 70s don't compare, as you say, to the uh, the products that are out there now that are so much more concentrated. So, Jamie, when we talk about smoking cessation, every patient, every case is different, but there must be some basic steps that are offered in, in programs. And I know you're very involved Thank you for that with the American Lung Association. How would you advise somebody to go about the task? Yeah, so that's what I'm the most excited to talk about today. You know, I want to make sure that people understand that there are uh, evidence-based resources and evidence-based guidelines for how to quit smoking. Tobacco addiction is a two-part problem. There's a physiologic addiction to nicotine, Mm. and then there's the behavioral habit of smoking or using these products. And a successful cessation strategy has to address both of those angles. So we might want to consider pharmacotherapy to mitigate some of the nicotine, the effects of nicotine addiction or the symptoms of withdrawal, but we must combine that with behavioral counseling to break the habit. And like you said, no one strategy works for any one patient, um, but in general, what the American Lung Association outlines is this three-step process. The first step would be educate yourself. So really think about why you smoke um, and why do you want to quit? Is it because you're not feeling well? Is it because the habit of smoking is so expensive? Is it because it's inconvenient to smoke where all these smoke-free policies exist? Not enough, but some. Uh, Is it because you want to protect the safety of your friends and family from secondhand exposure? There's many reasons why people want to quit. More than 70% of adult smokers say that they want to quit in the past year. About half of them have tried, but most people or many people are not successful. And the reason that they're not successful, I think, is because they don't seek out support and utilize the available resources, resources which can increase your chance of success. So what are these resources? The step two is what is the support? So most people um, try to quit cold turkey. They quit without... Um, without any plan in place, but that's not likely to be successful. You need a plan and that plan should involve a quit date. It should involve a social network. Um, It should involve some strategies for how to relax or meditate or control your weight or exercise and how to deal with urges to smoke. And then the the third step is cessation treatments. Um, And I wanna again, just reemphasize that a, a, a a likely a cessation treatment approach that involves pharmacotherapy using FDA approved medications and counseling is much more likely to be successful than one that employs either one or the other or neither. There are seven FDA approved medications and there are three different forms of counseling. Many of these are totally free through the American Lung Association um, uh, or the Pennsylvania Department of Health. These are free counseling sessions, individual group or telephone counseling that anyone can call at any time to get help. And I know we'll review this at the end of the show, but if people want to visit the American Lung Association website, easylung.org, and it outlines these suggestions, which you outlined beautifully, I must say. And it's interesting, learn how to control your weight because a lot of people say, oh gosh, if I quit smoking, I know I'm going to gain weight because I guess there's an oral need that you want to fill. You're used to putting a cigarette there, now you're going to put a candy bar or whatever it is. Um, But ironically, we know that smoking bumps your risk for diabetes and if you gain weight. So, but as you say, 
baby steps outlined have a plan. I always think whether it's cancer or an illness, if people have a plan, that's step one in making them feel better and, and calmer and more hopeful. So nicotine withdrawal is an issue that has to be addressed as well. Tell us how what that would look like. Yeah, so the reason why a lot of people struggle to stop is because symptoms of withdrawal from nicotine are unpleasant. They are really unpleasant. I'm not discounting that at all. People may experience difficulty sleeping or they may feel irritable or anxious or restless or frustrated or angry. They may feel like they have a brain fog and it's hard to think clearly. And that's why these medications that are used um, in, in the setting of a, of a cessation program can mitigate those symptoms. Some of those symptoms mm-hmm. are actually stronger and more powerful in different types of people. Women tend to have more intense symptoms of withdrawal than men. And that's, there's a, probably a million reasons for that. Um, and people who have a lot of um, psychological or social stress may have a more difficult time coping with nicotine withdrawal. All of these make it more difficult for some people um, to quit. So support, support, support. That's why the American lung, your family and friends, you don't want a friend say, oh, I know you're really hurting. Here, just have one cigarette with me. No, that's not going to help you. So we look back to the smoking bans and smoke-free public places like bars and restaurants. Let's go through the history of that a little bit. I, I think Pennsylvania was a little late to join so there's, there's a ton of ways that local and state and federal policies can help and truly have helped. This has been probably one of the biggest public health um, successes of, of the century is how smoking cessation or smoke policies have reduced overall tobacco use. Um, but to just g- give you a highlight about that, in the mid-1970s, the first state was happened to be Minnesota, um, was the first state to enact a Clean Indoor Air Act, which bans smoking in most public spaces. And over the next sort of, you know, 10 years, um, almost all of the states, up to 36 states, had had some form of a smoking restriction in place. But it took like 25 years before Pennsylvania really got on that bandwagon. And in 2008 is when Pennsylvania enacted its Clean Indoor Air Act, which prohibited smoking in public places uh, and in workplaces. But there were some exceptions, and that law has not been modified since then. One of the most concerning parts about that Uh, Pennsylvania Clean Indoor Air Act is that there's a preemption that says that um, individual or local municipalities can't make their own regulations. So if a small, um, you know, municipality wants to have stricter rules, they are not permitted to do that. Only changes at the federal or the state level um, can result in an increase in restrictions to keep more Pennsylvanians safe. Wow. The the red tape is always uh, astounding. So, Tell us about populations that are increased risk. Uh, Okay, so there are a few populations that have a greater risk of smoking-related disease than others, and this is African-Americans who have really been targeted by big tobacco, uh, specifically with regard to menthol cigarettes, which are almost exclusively used within African-American communities and are harder to quit um, and might have more significant side effects. So the African-American community is disproportionately uh, addicted to tobacco uh, more than Caucasians and Uh, Latino and Hispanics. Children, of course, are at increased risk because they don't get to choose. They're living in the home and uh, four out of every 10 kids um, will be exposed to secondhand smoke in the home. And that uh, there's also disproportionate um, of impact for kids of different races. So African-American kids um, have an even higher exposure than Caucasian kids. Um, Latinos and Hispanics are the largest population of the hospitality industry. Mm. Um, And so this group of 
of, um, of Americans are at especially increased risk of both exposure and a lack of uh, smoke-free protection. And then the LGBTQ community, um, more, than, more than often this community has been specifically targeted for use and um, it's difficult to quit when there is a lack of uh, engagement with the healthcare system and support within uh, your friends and family. Wow. And then women have um, more deaths from lung cancer. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think many people think that tobacco use is a men's problem mm. or a man's problem and that lung cancer is a man's problem. Um, and that's not true. Uh, in the in the late 1980s, lung cancer surpassed breast cancer to become the leading cause of cancer deaths among U.S. women. And there's been a tremendous increase in uh, lung cancer cases in women. In fact, in the year 2025, it said that the incidence of cancer of lung cancer in women will exceed that of men, which we've never seen before. Um, and this is also varying by race and ethnicity, where Black women are um, at increased risk of death from lung cancer and tobacco-related uh, disease um, than other races. So there are many groups that are at increased risk, but um, everyone um, is at risk of uh, you know, the tremendous morbidity and mortality from tobacco. Incredible. Jamie, this is so enlightening. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Jamie Garfield. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie here with Dr. Jamie Garfield. 2022, a good time to set your mind to stop smoking. But we also want to talk about vaping and why that's not a good idea. E-cigarettes, they're a type of electronic nicotine delivery. I guess that's the formal name. And there's a cartridge that contains a liquid, an atomizer, or a vaporizing chamber with a heating element and a battery. Take it, take us from there, Jamie. What happens when people use, uh, and I know there's been an evolution of um, yeah, so e-cigarettes. The, the original form of an e-cigarette looked much like a cigarette, but now they have evolved to be smaller and more discreet. They can even look like a flash drive, which are it's really easy to conceal for middle school and high school students from teachers and parents. They are extremely modifiable. So um, as you said, there's like a button or uh, there's a button on the side um, that when you push it, the battery is activated and it'll heat up the liquid. The liquid becomes a vapor, which is then inhaled by the user. Users are able to modify the heating temperature. They're able to refill the e-liquid in, in many cases with different flavors. Um, some products come free pre-filled and are disposable. Um, the e-liquid can, can contain nicotine um, commonly, but it also can contain THC um, or marijuana oils. Um, so there are all different ways that users have, you know, that these products have evolved to uh, keep them current, to make sure that more and more people are interested in trying um, and beginning the habit of, of the, this addiction to nicotine. And am I right? Overall, we were, we're seeing a uh not so many adults using it, but the, but a pretty sharp rise in the use of e-cigarettes in, I would say, preteens, middle school and high school students. Tell us about that. 
Well, it's not that adults aren't using it. I mean, it really, there's a there's almost 10 million U.S. adults who are using these products. Um, most of the adults who use e-cigarettes are current or previous smokers, some of whom decide to pick up e-cigarettes as a tool to quit or reduce the, the effects of tobacco-related disease, but honestly, most of whom continue to use both products simultaneously, and we call this dual use. Uh, e-cigarettes were the second most common tobacco product among adults after combustible cigarettes. But uh, to your point, there has been a tremendous and sharp increase in use uh, amongst middle school and high school students. So almost a 900% increase between the years 2011 and 2015, peaking in 2019, which is great, um, decreasing slightly in 2020 and 2021. But that was not an accident. That was the result of really intense uh, policy changes and education, and, and in part COVID, actually, because kids were not in the same environment where they were able to get the devices and they were home under the scrutiny of their parents. Um, but one in five high school kids continue to use e-cigarettes. That's, that's still just way too much. Um, more than two million kids at this point um, are everyday e-cigarette users. Yeah, and it's just like uh, when we talk about... Um THC, how do we do studies to look at long term? They haven't been around long enough to study them. But one of the things that comes to mind is that for, say, in the case of middle school and high schoolers, other kids that are around those who vape, that's secondhand exposure. You know, we talked a little earlier about population and increased risk for uh, problems such as children exposed to secondhand smoke from cigarettes. They get middle ear infections, more asthma. Um, you know, uh, low birth weights, more ectopic pregnancies, all those issues. What are some of the risks that we do know about with uh, vaping? So the, the biggest risk from, from vaping these products is the risk of nicotine exposure. That's certainly not the only one, but the amount of nicotine in these devices can be really exorbitant. Like a, one of these smaller um you know, USB looking devices can have as much nicotine as a full pack of cigarettes. And some mm. of the newer devices, which use things like nicotine salts, um, the salts can have very high concentrations of nicotine, sometimes two to three packs of cigarettes with very little burn. The chemistry is such that it's easier to get these salts down um, or inhale them deeply without um, being just turned off by them. And then the newer products on the market are almost entirely synthetic nicotine, which allows these cigarette manufacturers to avoid tobacco control laws. I'm going to stop you there for a minute. That is so important. Synthetic nicotine, just like we hear about synthetic um fentanyl it's so evil and it goes around the, the regulation so our poor kids think a lot of people that think vaping is just a puff of clear air with no danger wrong oh ernest what, <laughs> right. Vern, what are the what are the other issues involved i didn't mean to cut you off there but i no, think no, no, people okay. people need to hear that um nicotine especially in a developing brain again we're talking about 13, 14 year olds, what does that do to their developing brain? Nine and 10 year olds. I mean, these are, these are middle school. My son is 11. These are, he, he knows kids who, who do vape, um, which is just, it's, it's so astounding. In, in addition to the nicotine in these e-liquids, there's 
preservatives or dilutants like propylene glycol and glycerol. And these can decompose to like very well-known carcinogens like formaldehyde and acetaldehyde. There's a bunch of other carcinogenic compounds that have been found in these e-cigarette e-liquids, um, including metals in some trace amounts and, and flavors. When you ask kids, mm. up to 20% of them say, I only vape flavors. The only thing that's in my e-liquid is, is flavoring. And, and that's not true in many cases because there's very little regulation requiring these manufacturers to actually prove what is on their packaging is in their product. And one of the biggest consequences of that lack of kind of regulation was the Evoli epidemic, which is the e-cigarette uh, and vaping product associated lung injury. It's um, Evoli is the um, short acronym yeah uh-huh. yeah the acronym mm-hmm. thank you mm-hmm. um this was in 2019 maybe you remember this in the news right sure. before covid or a year before covid mm-hmm. um where all these kids who are other you know previously completely healthy were being hospitalized with severe respiratory symptoms many of whom uh, experienced respiratory failure and death even requiring lung transplantation all because of contaminated um e-cigarettes and most of the time they were linked to adding THC, right? No, that's correct. That's correct. So vitamin E can be nasty too? Well, no. So the, the most of the Evoli cases were, were found in THC containing liquids. And it's because vitamin E was used um, as oh. a dilutant in these THC products. And there's the data that exists does suggest that there were some Evoli cases that were linked to nicotine products, products with only nicotine in them. I, I'm not sure I believe that um, because there's the, the reporting was subject to a lot of bias. People were more reluctant to say that they were using THC products. And so they may, may have not been honest about whether or not they were smoking sure. THC products versus nicotine products. But the, I think the important takeaway from Evoli is that this came and went and it was devastating and um and awful a lot of young kids really suffered but there will be another one there'll be some other agent that's added to um you know either a thc or a nicotine product to make it more desirable and because they really are poorly regulated um, and monitored and not tested we won't know until it's too late once again um, what it is that's causing all this injury well and there are other people wouldn't think of other reasons that you end up in the emergency department if you're carrying it and it, it uh, burns your, your leg or your you know when you light up if it burns a person's face or their hand but if you're carrying it in your pocket and it, there are explosive and chemical injuries or, or if a little child gets their hands on it and they ingest uh, those chemicals they there are children that have died am I right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean I think mm-hmm. that the, the real important thing to discuss when we're talking about e-cigarettes, because there's a lot of misinformation out there about whether or not there's a role for e-cigarettes for uh, as a harm reduction strategy to help adult smokers uh, either reduce their cigarette use or quit smoking. And I want to be really clear that I don't think that there's any role for e-cigarettes as a harm reduction strategy. And it has to do with really three things. One is that there is... Um, dual use. So as I mentioned before, adult smokers who pick up e-cigarettes will continue to smoke cigarettes and use e-cigarettes, doubling essentially the amount of nicotine that they're consuming in many cases. Number two, there are never smokers, many of which are kids who were not combustible cigarette smokers who are attracted to the flavors of e-cigarettes and begin smoking e-cigarettes. And now you've created nicotine addiction in these previously never smokers. And the third reason is that a lot of these, up to a third of these 
never smokers who picked up e-cigarettes will go on to start smoking combustible cigarettes. So all for mm -hmm. these three reasons, and you know, also the normalizing smoking and some of the long-term effects of um, e-cigarettes e that we don't really have a handle on. For all of these reasons, I don't think that there is a role for e-cigarettes as a harm reduction strategy. And there was just an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, maybe in December, that said that if you st obviously if you start at a younger age, the damage is probably exponential, right? If you're starting at nine or ten, duh, uh, up goes your risk for heart disease, cancer risk, pregnancy, uh, you know, interference. All of these are largely unknown, especially since this is a different animal. And we can talk a little about vaping, cessation of uh, vaping when we come back in our from our break and. I'm very anxious to hear about that with Dr. Jamie Garfield. And in our last segment with Dr. Jamie Garfield from Temple Lung Center, we're talking now about how we can help people stop vaping, how we can educate them and programs to do so. Are the programs to stop vaping pretty much in parallel with those to stop smoking cigarettes? There must be some differences. Yeah, I mean, there's really no proven therapies, unfortunately, to help current e-cigarettes quit using e-cigarettes. Many, many of us will employ some of the same strategies that we use for our combustible cigarette users for e-cigarettes, but there's no evidence or prospective randomized trials that actually support or refute um, these cessation strategies for e-cigarette users. So the best approach is really to prevent people from starting. So reducing access and availability, reducing or putting pressures on marketing, reducing the attractiveness of these products and the age to, that you have to be to purchase these products. And for parents and teachers, talk to your kids about vaping. Um, and for healthcare providers like me and, and other um, people in the healthcare field, it's really important to have a singular message that there's no role for smoking cessation, uh, for e-cigarettes as a tool for smoking cessation, because I think it gets confusing. There is a lot of information that comes up and it's hard to parse through it. Exactly. And it's, it's also hard to convince young people because they're invincible. Uh, and, and again, I make reference to another article I found recently from JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association Oncology, which states that they have evidence that if they're looking at over 400,000 people, those who quit smoking before the age of 40, uh, it reduces their risk for lung cancer by 90%. Now, that's a big statement to make, but it's age-related, it's quantity-related, it's how young you are when you start and end and all those good things. But again, it's a hard sell for somebody who's smoking, having fun, and, it, and it's cool because they fit in with their friends. So what are your take-home messages, Jamie? Uh, tobacco is the leading cause of prevent preventable disease, disability, and death, and that smoking cessation will significantly reduce overall morbidity and mortality attributed to tobacco product use. And maybe it's your new, new year's resolution, or maybe it's 2022, or maybe it's because of COVID or your health and quality of life, but there's never uh, a better time to quit than today. Um, and if you, if you smoke, you want to talk to your doctor about cessation and enlist your friends and your family and seek support resources from the American Lung Association at lung.org or the PA Department of Health has excellent resources as well at um, health.pa.gov. And I want to remind everyone that successful programs require both behavioral counseling and pharmacotherapy and that e-cigarettes are not a tool for smoking cessation and that we need to talk to our kids about vaping and use resources to help have these difficult conversations. And if you want to, you know, if you want to try to find an appointment with a smoking cessation specialist, 
uh, or a pulmonologist like me, you can visit the Temple Lung Center. Beautiful. Visit the website of the American Lung Association. Again, that's lung.org. And if somebody wanted to see you at Temple Lung Center, they could call 1-800-TEMPLE-MED. Easy to remember, 1-800-TEMPLE-MED. Dr. Jamie Garfield, you are a superstar. And I hope people heard what you had to say because you said it so well. They can always listen again on yourradiodoctor.com. Thank you, Jamie, and Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Dr. Richie. You have a great New Year as well. your real champion. I call this segment Food, Folks, and Faith. No one ever wants to hear the word cancer in the same sentence as their own name. Well, imagine how a parent feels when they learn their child has cancer. As the mother of three, I remember those occasions when I'd get a call, when our 14-year-old son was hit by a truck crossing the street, when our daughter got a concussion and couldn't speak, or when our 10-year-old son had a life-threatening allergic reaction to walnuts. Each brush with fate had a happy ending, but most of the time, cancer doesn't come with a quick fix in the emergency room. Chuck Montefar has a story to tell. In 1999, he and his wife Joe learned their 12-year-old daughter, Kara, had a cancer in her thigh called Ewing sarcoma. Chuck remembers the moment when he got the news. His pediatrician sent him to St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. The treatment would include chemotherapy to shrink the tumor. Then Kara would return for surgery a few months later, followed by more chemo. They felt comfort in having a plan. It was the eve of Thanksgiving. After her first round of chemo, she was using crutches to leave the hospital in good spirits. Then she stopped in the doorway to say goodbye and tripped. She broke her femur right at the site of the tumor. Imagine the pain and fear in Kara and her parents. Chuck tells the story like he's chanting when the saints go marching in. The orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Dick Lackman, came right back to the hospital and on Thanksgiving Day took the girl to the OR, stabilized her leg, and sent her home with a long leg cast. She was then able to heal, go through chemo, and return for the surgery when her own femur was replaced by a titanium rod. And Dr. Greg Halligan was the oncologist who mapped out the big plan. Chuck refers to both men as saints. Their little Kara grew to be a healthy woman with a four-year-old son of her own now named Caden. Though it was a tough chapter in their lives, Chuck and Joe are grateful to the doctors and staff and cherish the friendships they forge with other parents. Make-A-Wish Foundation made it possible for Kara and her parents and four friends to fly to the Midwest to an in-sync concert and meet the band backstage. Chuck and Joe then joined Make-A-Wish, and Chuck was on the board for six years. They spent years with Katie's Crusaders, a foundation formed by a family who lost their child to cancer. Chuck also remembers his schedule during the cancer treatment. He spent every waking minute at the hospital after work. By that time, the cafeteria was closed. Dinner? from the vending machine offered two options, Twizzlers or a payday, and he'd wash it down with ginger ale for months. He heard about the Ronald McDonald House at 40th and Chestnut near Children's Hospital, where parents could eat meals and stay overnight a few blocks away from their sick children. Chuck and Joe and a few other parents began fundraising to build a Ronald McDonald House near St. Chris. Cake bakes, small events, and after a few years, they found help to build a Ronald McDonald House at Front and Erie, a few steps from St. Chris. The Ronald McDonald House near CHOP has over 100 guest rooms, large dining area, and a shuttle service to the hospital. The house near St. Chris is smaller, but equally impressive. 
Aside from the houses, there are Ronald McDonald family rooms at local hospitals, a camp, a care mobile, and so much more. Last year, Chuck helped convert the house on Erie to a food distribution site for churches and food pantries during COVID. Plus, he still drives the van for the house on Chestnut Street. Chuck and Joe are part of a beautiful team at the Ronald McDonald House Charities, creating a community of comfort and hope that supports family of seriously ill children. We salute you, Chuck and Joe Montefar, your rail champions. Visit the website for Ronald McDonald House Charities, philarmh.org, philarmh.org. Any donation will help, and there's a great need at this time for drivers for the vans. Call 215-387-8406. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Rothman Orthopedics and Recovery Centers of America. Thank you for tuning in each week. Listen to any of our shows again on yourradiodoctor.com or yourradiodoctor.net. Stay with me in February when we launch our new show, still bringing the best and brightest doctors, researchers from top academic centers around the country so you can make better decisions for yourselves and your loved ones. A special shout out to my dear nephew. Happy birthday, Smitty. It's a good day to stay inside and ring in the new year with the sounds of Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I will always be your radio doctor, wishing you a happy and safe week. Here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.